I was reading a couple of weeks ago uh, about Simone Biles uh, and her complete dominance at the World Artistic Gymnastics Championship in Antwerp, Belgium, where she won her 29th and 30th career medals. Not bad. Uh, Ms. Biles is repeatedly in the press called the GOAT of gymnastics. GOAT meaning G-O-A-T, the greatest of all time. I'm still old enough to remember GOAT being a bad term. I remember the Charlie Brown cartoon where he'd be pitching and thinking in his little thought bubbles, hero or goat? Will I be a hero or a goat? Uh, But goat now is a positive term, and you can credit Muhammad Ali for that. Uh, He invented the term, and uh, it was popularized by LL Cool J back in the day uh, on his uh, album G-O-A-T. And uh, the term has been applied here in New England most often to... Tom Brady, uh, in Chicago, it was Michael Jordan, uh, Penny Hardaway, uh, and lots of others, and of course, Ms. Biles. And so we remember hearing one of the commentators speaking about Simone Biles' almost superhuman genetics, and another commentator saying, well, yeah, that and thousands of hours in the gym, right? So... It doesn't matter how superhuman your genetics are, there's no goat without lots and lots and lots of practice. Disciplined. Disciplined. I remember my first experience with disciplined practice. Uh, I was seven years old. My family was living in Japan. And I wanted to be a samurai. I found out that wasn't a realistic career move. So uh, I decided to learn judo. And uh, my parents made the arrangements and dutifully brought me to a dojo to begin classes. (gasps) I was ready for it. Judo practice. I was going to learn baby flips, takedowns, kicks, punches, cool stuff. It was going to be awesome. The first day of practice, we all got lined up. We met our sensei, and we were told to lie down on mats on the ground. Imagine this is the ground behind us. We're to lie down on mats on the ground and slap the mat with our arms. Hike! And yell that. Hike! And repeat that. Hike! Hike! About, well... Probably a hundred times, but it felt like about 10,000 times. And that was it. That was the practice. I was so disappointed. No flips, no kicks. Hi! Hi! Hitting the ground until my hand was sore. Now, a half a century, no, more than half a century, a century or half a century and change later, I realized what they were doing was instilling muscle memory one stage at a time. The first week, we learned how to hit a mat really hard with our hands and yell, hi. The next week, we uh, rolled and then hit the ground. And then the next week, we got flipped and 
rolled and hit the ground and hit yelled high. It was one slow step at a time, learning the muscle memory to keep from getting hurt when you get flipped or you fall. Uh, you got to learn to fall before you get to the flips and the punches and the, all the other stuff. It takes lots and lots and lots and lots of disciplined practice. I remember teaching our kids to drive when they turned 16. The only cars we owned were manual transmission, and so for them to get the driver's license, they had to learn how to clutch. And from tick and talk, the, uh, or click and clack, the uh, car guys had Ray learned... Ray and Tom Magliazzi, yeah, right down the street. Magliazzi. Um, we learned that um, the best way to teach someone to drive a stick shift is not the way my dad taught me, we won't go into that. But to take, um, to take them to a parking lot and ask them to a hundred times release the clutch without ever touching the gas so that you feel, you learn to feel what it feels like when the clutch engages. You get it into your muscle memory. And it works. If you do that a hundred times, you'll be able to drive a standard shift car. While they were in the process of that hundred times, our kids complained bitterly, why couldn't we be like normal people and have an automatic car? <laughs> but once they learned, they were like, hey, I can drive a standard transmission. <laughs> they, they loved it. And our son had a manual. That's right. Yes. Thank you. All that is to get us to our gospel reading this morning, where Jesus is debating with the religious scholars and authorities of his day. One of them comes to him and asks a big question. Of all the 600 plus commandments in the Torah, which is the goat commandment? the greatest of all time, the greatest commandment. The, the inclusive language version in your bulletin today uses a terrible, weak word, the foremost commandment. In the New Revised Standard, it says greatest. Can you imagine Muhammad Ali declaring, I am the foremost? No. Which is the greatest commandment? And you know Jesus' answer. It comes from the book of Deuteronomy. It was one of the holiest ver verses in Jewish thought. Shema Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you will love the Most High God with all your might and soul and strength and heart. And then Jesus slides in a second. And, you'll, should, and you need to love your neighbor as yourself which is really the same thing, right? Loving the neighbor who we see is how we love the God that we don't see. So that, according to Jesus, is the goat commandment. Love God, love neighbor, love self. Pretty simple. I suspect everyone nodded in agreement when Jesus said that. It's so simple. It's so obvious and it's so foremostly high hard I mean it's difficult it's 
really, really tough to love all the time. Have you met my neighbor? That's why the goat commandment needs lots and lots and lots of disciplined practice. One of our colleagues, who's a very fine preacher, once said to me, basically every sermon I preach is the same thing. Love and justice. Love and justice. Over again, love and justice. Because we need to hear it every week until it becomes part of our spiritual muscle memory and we can do it without thinking until we can release a clutch on a car even uphill, even in rush hour traffic mm. successfully. <clears throat> Love God with all, your, with all you are. Practice until you can flip and roll and not get hurt and slap the ground. Hey! Practice, practice, practice. Love the neighbor, yes, even the annoying one. It's all about love and justice. And if you agree with Dr. Cornell West that justice is what love looks like in public, then really it's just all about love. God, neighbor, self, with all we've got, heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love. But then... The sirens come in. Then the sirens come in. Then we read the news of the last three weeks. And then we realize anew. Oh, we need practice. When we hear of the inhumanity that humans are capable of practicing upon other human beings... We go, we need practice. The unspeakable tragedy in Lewiston, Maine. The ongoing horror of Israel, Palestine, in Gaza, in Bethlehem, in Tel Aviv, in Ukraine, in a thousand, thousand other places that don't make the news. There is so much pain, so much death. So much cruelty, so much grief. And we wonder, is it even possible to love enough that we love in and through these kinds of tragedies? I suspect Jesus would tell us, yes, that's precisely where we have to love. That's what makes this the greatest of all time commandments. Because it's always true. We always need to practice love. No exceptions. Pondering all of this this week, I came across an op-ed in the New York Times, maybe you saw it as well, by David Leonhardt. And he spoke of having interviewed some folks who are living in uh, Tel Aviv in Israel, whose family members were killed in the Gaza attack and some of whose friends have been taken hostage. And one of them is Maoz Inan, who runs a hostel 
um, in Tel Aviv whose 75-year-old parents were killed in the Hamas attack. He said, I don't stop crying. I'm crying for my parents. I'm crying for my friends. I'm crying for those who were kidnapped. I'm crying for the victims on the Palestinian side. And I'm crying for all of the victims who are going to suffer. We don't sleep at night. We don't eat. We are broken, he said. Inan understands the pull toward revenge, the desire to completely get rid of one's enemy, to kill enough of the enemy so that one feels safe. And he also knows that that won't solve things, not really. He went on to say, from these traumatized days, we must learn the lessons from history. He said, someone needs to be brave enough to stop the cycle of blood and dislike and violence that has been going on for a century. And I would say, for centuries. David Leonhardt interviewed others with similar messages. We have lost those we love, but more killing will not fix this. They know they are in the minority. They also know there has to be another way, a harder way, a way of love, a way that could maybe lead toward a different result, toward peace. Leonhardt ends his op-ed with these words. If even people like Inon, personally shattered by a barbaric terror attack, can muster the clarity to understand that relentless bombardment and a ground invasion will not help, perhaps there's hope for the rest of us. May we learn from their wisdom and humanity. We've also read statements from Palestinian Christians, words of wisdom and humanity, people who are bearing the brunt of the horrific and brutal bombardment and invasion of Gaza. One statement reads, we are fully committed to the way of Jesus in creative nonviolent resistance which uses what they call the logic of love and draws on all energies to make peace. We believe that humanity can learn. In fact, that we must learn from the wisdom and the humanity of Palestinian and Jewish and Muslim peace activists that we can and we must learn from the conversation between Jesus and the religious authorities of his day to live toward hope and toward peace. And we'll have to keep practicing love, a robust and resilient and endless love. It will take a lifetime of practice. And this is what church is for. This is what Harvard Epworth is about. Church is the place of practice. 
It's the dojo. It's the driving school. Church is where we learn to live according to the rules of love that run counter to the rules of the world. Worship is spiritual practice. Classes are practice. Prayer groups and meals together and being in service to those in need, it's all practice of love. Practicing loving God with all we are. Practicing loving our neighbor as ourself. And even our stewardship, even in how we give financially to this church, is practice at loving God and neighbor and ourselves. The biblical injunction is to give God the first 10% of the harvest, 10% of one's earnings. It's called the tithe. It can sound a lot like having to do 100 gas-free clutch releases in a parking lot. (laughs) It's worth saying. How is that stewardship? How is that a dojo? And yet, as someone who has tithed for 50 years, since I was 12, it's literally 50 years. I've discovered a couple things. One, that it is totally possible to live on 90% of what I make. And two, there's a real joy in living on 90% of what I make so that 10% I can give to God's work in the world. Giving doesn't just transform my relationship with money, it's part of my relationship with the church, as Kate mentioned this morning. It grows a resilient generosity in me that's made my life more rich, and I hope, at least in part, has helped to make the world a little bit more whole. Giving is one of the thousand ways that we try to practice loving God, neighbor, and self. We wouldn't give that up right now at this point any more than Simone Biles would give up her pre-performance warm-ups or her thousands of hours on the uneven bars. It's part of the whole picture of how we live out the GOAT commandments. To love God, to love neighbor, to love self. We keep at it, especially when it's hard. And so giving and learning and worshiping and praying on our own, together, our practice. It helps us to build that muscle memory of love so that it's there when we need it, which is all the time. My friends, I believe that that changes us and the world around us. May it be so. Amen. Amen. Our next hymn this morning is The Gift of Love. It's number 408 in your red hymnal.